Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. And so, yes, the first person we have coming to speak is going to be Amanda Jones. Come on, Amanda. That's very encouraging. Thank you. Right, has that timer stopped? started? Don't start it yet. We've been told, do not go over 10 minutes. <sighs> right, ready? You can start the clock. Okay. Well, Sim said, this didn't need to be a slick presentation. So I thought I'd tell you all about commodes and corns. Okay? Uh, breathe away. You'll be glad to hear this isn't a TED talk on toilets. As you can probably guess, I do work in health. And no surprises, I'm a nurse. And maybe a surprise, I'm a foot health practitioner, which is like a podiatrist, a chiropodist. I better clarify what commodes and corns are. Um, one is a very ouchy bit of hard skin on your foot, and the other is like a portaloo without the sort of cupboard around you and the chemical flush. Let me give you a picture. There we go. As you can see, there's actually a Rolls-Royce and a Mini Metro variety of commode. And um, both serve the function as a mobile toilet with a potty that goes underneath. Um, they're very versatile. You could actually use this for extra seating at Christmas. Or if you're contemplating an ensuite for your bedroom, give this a go first. Um, so... Um, don't do what I do, though. I did have a disaster with a commode. A patient asked me, you need to go to the toilet. I said, yeah, I'll go and get you a commode. Absolutely fine. Rush, rush, rush. Forgot to put the potty underneath. Let's just say it was really messy. Um, anyway, enough of commodes. I'll, I'll tell you where this talk is heading. Um, I'm going to seamlessly link my observations of how people often feel a tad vulnerable around commodes and corns, um, but also when their health is under threat. How this feeling can be an opening to some God conversations and my dilemma on how I handle these conversations. Bearing in mind my nursing governing body says I mustn't express my religious beliefs in an inappropriate way. Um, to give a bit of background, I've spent 33 years in the NHS and about the same time as a Christian. I didn't feel cool to nursing, but I do love a bit of blood and guts. Um, I'm a bit less keen when the toenails go in my mouth, and that has actually happened. So note to self, must wear my mask. Um, mostly I've been in community jobs as a district nurse and a diabetes nurse um, and no home visit is complete without uh, me asking about people's toilet facilities, hence the link to commodes. Fast forward uh, a couple of years ago while working as a stressed diabetes nurse, I was asking God what to do about work and he prompted me to leave and go self-employed as a community nurse and a foot health practitioner. Um, which was a bit of a nerve-wracking journey initially. Um, it was a big step of faith for me. However, God seems to know what he's doing, and um, I'm really enjoying it, and he's provided me with loads of clients, which I'm really blessed with. Having mentioned about people feeling vulnerable if their health is threatened, I'd better get a bit real and say I, too, am just, a, uh, just as vulnerable. And now is definitely one of those sort of sweaty hand moments. On the plus side, though, vulnerable, vulnerability does give me a shove towards God as I wrestle with uncertainties. There are so many challenges in healthcare that I haven't got the answers for. 
What can I say to someone in such pain? How can I reassure a very lonely lady? Will I trust my vulnerabilities to God's safe hands, that he is in control and already knows the beginning from the end? I've observed when people are under threat, sometimes that is a time when they're looking for meaning in their life. And I've been asked, if I have a faith, do I go to church? Is it one of those happy, clappy ones? And do I believe we all go to heaven? All tricky questions. And as I've got older, with more of a what-can-I-lose attitude, I can say with more confidence how God is a massive help in my life. And I may tell them some of my life experiences. I'll take my mask off a bit more and tell you my wobbly times have caused me anxiety and panic and wondering where God is in it all for all sorts of reasons. And it's probably just me. But I have days when I'm not full of the joy of the Lord. I perhaps feel tired, impatient, stressed and distracted by my own stuff. So my words and my actions may be less thoughtful than I'd like. To rectify this, I need to find rest with the Lord again and get replenished. I, like most of you, have been the patient at times, if only in very minor ways, and I didn't really like it. I felt vulnerable and I felt scared and not at all dignified in that hospital gown. But on the plus side, it's given me a little bit more empathy. And I compare myself to other nurses on the ward and I think, mm, I like what they're doing, not so keen on what they're doing. So I kind of pick up some top tips. I'll give you a flavour of my work. So working with people is rarely nine to five, but it's never boring. I'm faced with frequent dilemmas, time constraints, inadequate resources, and believe it or not, patients who don't want to do what I'm suggesting. So I send up lots of SOS prayers as I go through my day. For me, the high points of being a nurse certainly outweigh the lows. And um, here's a few examples why. There's a flow of appreciation from grateful families. The satisfaction of creating a masterpiece from a, very, a pair of very uncomfortable feet. Providing a care package for an older person to live safely in their home. And finally, the enormous strength and courage that some people show in adversity, which I find really humbling. Here are some of the people that Jesus has introduced me to who have many challenges, and I have changed their names. There's Liz, whose partner has been alcoholic for 40 years, and he has multiple organ failure. And there's Claire, who's 24 and recently gone blind and attempted suicide several times. And there's Richard, who's 20, and he has type 1 diabetes, but he's refusing to take his insulin, and without his insulin, he'll die. And Tom and Sylvia, who both live alone and haven't left their homes in years, one is too fearful and the other's immobile. I believe, though, that I shine light into their darkness. I'm not saying I always bring God into the conversation. I look to give words of hope and perseverance and encouragement as God is way bigger than our circumstances and weeps with those who weep. Working in health is obviously a bias towards achieving good physical health, but I believe a healthy spirit is what God's more interested in, and this bypasses any failings of the brain or the body. Therefore, I often pray for people's spirit to connect supernaturally with God, irrespective of their beliefs. 
I've cared for many people of different faiths, no faith, and lots of anger towards God. However, I try and offer love and acceptance, usually with more listening than talking. I have to decide to keep topped up with God because he makes me a much better person to be with. And if this is, could be what that vision would look like. To gauge how often I'm true to the angelic description on the slide, you'll probably need to talk to Steve and my kids. But bottom line, excuse the pun, I do believe I'm working with commodes and corns because God wants me there and I really enjoy it. Before going to work, though, I try and fill my spiritual tank with a dose of the Bible and prayer and also try and chat with him throughout the day, listening to his quiet whispers and his prompts. Isn't it amazing that we carry the Holy Spirit to all the people that we meet and they get touched by God in some way? I think of it like bees pollinating flowers. However, some days my angelic pollinating is embarrassingly bad and I have a quick confession that I need to get off my chest. I wonder if anyone's granny was around in the late 1980s at Winchester Hospital. Only there may be someone who got the wrong dentures and that could be down to me. <laughs> It was a simple request to clean all the old lady's teeth on the ward. I efficiently collected all their dentures into one bowl. Oops, um, the penny dropped. I hadn't got a clue who any of them belonged to. Straight on the God hotline, I was a new Christian, but I knew I had to turn to God. And after a very long time and several trying for size, Betty, does that feel okay? I think I got them back to their rightful owners. But apologies if that was your granny. I was young and inexperienced. I'd understand if you prefer to non not contact me for nursing or foot services, but my angelic credentials have come a long way, many thanks to God's grace. To summarise, you've learned a lot about commodes and corns just now, how my vulnerabilities make me more sensitive to my patients, the challenges of work and trying to involve God in it all. But above all, I hope I conveyed a sense of my desire to be useful for God and to get alongside people who are hurting. My question to you is whether I need to exercise uh, caution when talking about my faith. Uh, that one. This is from the NMC and their code of conduct. So it says, obviously, make sure you do not express your personal beliefs, including political, religious, or moral beliefs to people in an inappropriate way. And this is the code that I have to follow. So my question is, is it appropriate for me to offer to pray for my patients? Thank you so much, Amanda. Amanda's an amazing person who I once met on a train going to London and she was coming down the aisle dressed in fluorescent colours, raising funds for, I can't remember what you were, diabetes. And, and I said, so it would be no big deal, it would be like you on the train. She goes, yeah, but I know these people and they'll see me the following week. Uh, but hasn't she done a great job? Isn't it great to hear your story? Wonderful. Thank you so much, Amanda, for all you do and who you are and what you bring, what you carry. 
fantastic. So we're staying in the medical profession for another session, that's okay, um, but at the very other end of the spectrum. So think of the opposite of corns and commodes. Um, Sarah, come and join us here. Sarah works uh, in, in the health service, but she'll let her tell you much more about that. So yeah, round of applause for Sarah. Good afternoon. Um, this isn't my favorite place either, so we'll see how this goes. Okay, um, so the next TED, TED talk, TED talk um, I've called Big Decisions, Little Tiny Miracles. Um, there we are. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sarah, I'm married to David, um, and I have the amazing privilege of being a paediatric doctor, which is a job I absolutely love. Um, and for the last year, I've been working in the neonatal intensive care unit in Southampton, um, which looks a little bit, maybe, like this. There you are, top uh, left-hand corner. Um, so we have 36 cots. It's quite a big neonatal unit, um, split into four different nurseries, so ranging from anything from intensive care um, all the way down to babies that just need a bit of special care. Um, and as you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, is that left to you? No, right to you. Um, that's our mobile unit. So we also have a mobile incubator, um, which we take out all across the south coast. So we go everywhere from Dorchester to Chichester, up to Basingstoke, down to Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Wight, um, to collect the premature babies or the sick babies that are born in other hospitals and bring them back to Southampton for special care or the specialist care they need. Um, on a normal day, that involves our trusty ambulance in the top corner. Um, Thank you, St. John's. Um, but on a really exciting day, it also does involve the helicopter. Um, now, slight technical glitch. Um, we're not able to bring the photos up individually. So if anyone is a bit squeamish, I would um, ask you just to not look for the next <laughs> screen. Okay, so here are some of my babies that I look after. Um, they're obviously not my babies because I couldn't bring my patients with me. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. So I have shamelessly Googled um, all these pictures. Um, so apologies um, if anyone knows any of them. Um, so um, up in the top uh, right-hand corner um, is an incubator. So all of our babies pretty much are looked after in incubators um, to help keep them warm at different humidities. Um, in the middle there, one of the lovely parts of my job is I get to look after lots of twins, triplets, quads even, um, who are sometimes born a little bit small and need a little bit of extra help in the first few days and weeks of life. Um, in the middle there, that blue glow, many of you will be familiar with the uh, blue lights of um, the phototherapy for jaundice. Um, and we look after the really sick babies, the ones at the extreme end of that um, in Southampton as well. And in the bottom at the middle um, is a little baby who was born with a chest infection. Um, and he was, having he was struggling to feed and breathe at the same time. So he's got a little feeding tube in um, until he can feed for himself again. Um, in the top right-hand corner um, is a baby who was born with a congenital abnormality. So another um, area or group of babies we look after are those that are born with problems. Um, this one's been born with their bowel outside of their tummy, something called gastroschisis. Um, you can see that it's wrapped there in cling film to keep it nice and moist. And normally that would involve an operation on their first day of life to put that back into the right place. Um, and we'd provide the care for them after that situation. Um, in the bottom right-hand corner, you can see a very premature baby, so probably 23, 24 weeks. Um, you can see how thin and fragile and shiny their skin is. Um, probably weighs about 500 grams, so half a bag of sugar, um, and would fit in my palm of my hand. So the medical procedures can be quite a challenge. 
Um, and then in the bottom left-hand corner um, is a baby um, who was born on time but actually had a heart problem um, and needed open-heart surgery in their first few hours of life. So the range of what we do um, is quite variable. Now, it wouldn't be right to um, do this talk without mentioning one of the youngest members of Freedom Church. Um, born 11 weeks early, weighing 740 grams, um, with kind thanks to John and Anna for the photos, uh, mummy and daddy. Here is a picture of Jemima Hughes at just a few days old, I think that was, um, in her incubator, all tucked up. Um, and she was a recent patient of mine. And then a little bit more recently, here she is. Um, so in lots of ways, it's really easy to see God at work in the neonatal unit in my everyday. However, that's not the whole story. Um, here is uh, an unflattering picture of me, bottom left-hand corner, probably the only picture I could find of me at work. Um, and it was actually a text that I had sent David um, about a year ago on my first night shift as the most senior doctor on the shop floor. Um, and it's a text I sent to him saying, I'm terrified, please pray, um, that I make the right decisions for all these tiny ones tonight and keep them all alive till morning. Because I can tell you at 3 a.m., when you're ridiculously sleep-deprived and hungry, um, and you're making lots of quick decisions about lots of tiny people, the pressure and the responsibility feels huge. Um, and the fear that night was very real, that I would make the wrong decision. So I've learned to pray constantly at work, um, for God's wisdom in all the big decisions. And even though I know they won't all survive, um, he has graciously given me the confidence over the last year in all the decisions I make on my watch for these babies. Thinking about my story um, made me think a lot about the team I work with and what are their stories? What are they bringing to work? Um, so this isn't my team. This is another shamelessly Googled picture, um, but it's probably similar to our team. So we have about 13 or 14 nurses or healthcare assistants on at nighttime with three or four doctors of various different levels um, to keep the unit running. Um, and all of these people have their own story when they come to work. Um, lots of them um, come from overseas, have actually left family or children at home in different countries. Um, and many of them have missed Christmases, birthdays, bedtimes with their little ones, um, weddings to be here. As you can imagine, small people aren't born nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, they often come at inconvenient times. So by default, everyone works shifts. Um, and the shifts are 13 to 14 hours on your feet. Um, and it's not unusual for it to be too busy for you to take a proper break or to have a drink. Nice cup of tea. Um, and these amazing people also um, support so many of our parents through loss and bereavement and some of the saddest and most heartbreaking stories that I've ever heard. And God's challenge to me over the last year has been, am I loving these people, the people I work with, in the same way that he loves them? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Every member of staff I work with is fearfully and wonderfully made, even the annoying ones, even the irritating ones. God loves them and he values them. So how do I show his love to them in my everyday? Some of you will be familiar um, with this acronym um, of uh, situations that make us not the best version of ourselves. 
Um, and I think it's true, these are not uncommon um, feelings for most of us at some point during long runs of consecutive shifts, particularly if the shifts have been antisocial. So how do I bless people I work with in these situations? As I've got more senior, God's been challenging me to lead the team by creating pockets of space um, that even when it's busy, to allow people to take a break, allow people to go to the loo, allow people to have a cup of tea, to release them from their tasks, to release them from their babies, um, yeah, just to grab a Costa um, or go and do a Costa run, which I can tell you boosts morale no end at 5 a.m. And I've also been challenged to look after myself so that I'm approachable at whatever time of day or night it is. Now, I don't want to make it sound like we've got it all sorted. There are still plenty of emergencies and hairy moments and shifts where nobody's eaten and nobody's been to the loo. But God's challenge to me has remained to love the staff like he does because they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Another little project um, I've been involved in has been a slightly more creative one um, and involved making badges for all 200 members of our staff. Um, it's been great for the parents to get to know us, um, but actually it's been a, there's been a real power in naming people in a big organisation. Um, we've individualised every badge, um, which has helped to make people feel valued and also um, provided or created a real sense of unity in the team when every member of the team from the most junior nurse, student nurse, to the very most senior consultant has a name. So regardless of your job and what you do, the question I want to leave you with is in what little ways can you be his hands and feet in, to those you work with every day? Yes, Sarah, come on. Yes. Oh, man, how good was that? Fantastic. We're off to a flying start, aren't we? What a blessing since you and David have been with us. You are to our church, and it's so exciting to us that you're doing what you're doing in your workplace, Sarah. So thank you for sharing. Uh, that's a great question uh, that we're going to be pondering for quite some time, I think. Oh, wow. Are you ready for another rapturous round of applause? Excellent. Next up is our very own Frank Long. Frank, make your way up. This is your moment. Yes. Frank, you're going to absolutely smash it. Thank you very much. Oh, got to follow that. That's, um, I don't know if anyone's found, but since becoming a father, anything to do with children or babies really affects me. I used to just be able to like... I, know, I used to watch war films or war documentaries and that all sort of floated over me. I can't do it anymore. I remember sitting with Sarah and we, I'm sorry, this isn't in my talk, I'm just rambling now, but we were watching Harry Potter and there's a scene where his mum defends him. Honestly, couldn't watch it. So that's actually thrown me a little bit now, so that's great. Thank you for that. <laughs> that is brilliant. Um, well, good afternoon. My name, as I said, is Frank and um, I work for Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service as a firefighter. And I'd like to speak to you today about the idea of something I've been thinking about since uh, Sim asked me to do this, of um, what I term being with people. So it's 8.30 in the evening, and I'm preparing a jambalaya. And the rest of the watch are standing around providing the useful, usual helpful suggestions to me. It's pretty much anything that's likely to get a rise out of me and, and get a bite. 
that's what they're after. A bit of fun, a bit of, you know, trying to get at me. When all of a sudden my culinary exploits are rudely interrupted by the bells. Followed straight after by our call signs. 5-6, Papa 7, 5-6, Papa 4. Both appliances mobilised tells us this is probably something. And sure enough, our tip sheet confirms this. We have road traffic collision, persons trapped, man under car. We arrive at the scene where we're met by the HEMS doctor, the, the helicopter doctor, um, who speaks to us and says, you have five minutes to get this, this guy out from under this car or he's going to die. So, sure enough, we, we jack up the car, we, we disentangle and we pull him out. Assist the ambulance and the doctors in treating him. Excellent, job done. Home we go for some jambalaya. Brilliant. Well, for us, yes, but it's not really about us, it's about him, whoever he was. Um, the job wasn't done, it should probably have started a long time before. You see, the reason that gentleman had got run over was he was heavily intoxicated, um, and a few other details we learned suggested that actually he needed the kind of help which we could never give him, and would need help well into the future if indeed he survived. He went off in the ambulance, I have no idea what happened to him. And I think it's a theme of the work I do and something I've started to think about and realise is that we are not set up to give people what they really need. And, and for us, that read fire service, read the police, read the ambulance, social services, government, etc., etc. And I was trying to think, what is it that people really need? And I think there are two ways you can view the world's problems. There are those people who see the world's problems as a problem of deficit and those who see the world's problems as problems of dislocation. You see, deficit suggests that the problems of the world are those that can be overcome by greater resources, more money, technological advancements. They are problems to be solved. We set ourselves up to, to, to solve those problems. We put out the fire, we perform a rescue, we do things for people, or to people, and we tick the box as we go, showing our progress, our progress against the world and overcoming the world. Dislocation, on the other hand, suggests that the problems of our world are all problems of relationship. In this view, what we need is to do things with others, not to them or for them, but with them. People are not problems to be fixed, but people to be loved and lived alongside. And you see, I think this reflects a truth that we as Christians actually know and know well. I mean, in Genesis, we see that God walks with Adam, Adam and Eve indeed, and he says it's good. The problem occurs in the break in this relationship between man and God. And God tells us he'll provide what we need. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 30, that if, um, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? You see, throughout the Bible, it tells us that it's not problems of deficit, but problems of dislocation. It's problems of broken relationships, relationships between ourselves and God and between each other, which impacts the well-being of our lives. See, it's this understanding of, which my faith gives me of the problems of our world as ones of dislocation, which reminds me, when I engage with people, that these people are not problems to be managed. But rather, this is here as a person to be loved. Whatever situation I find them in, wherever I come across them, for however briefly I engage with them, they are people to be loved. And as such, I always look to see how I can do things, go beyond any any duty that's laid down in, in an act of parliament or a fire service standing order. See, it can be very, very easy 
to enter somebody's home, maybe doing what we call our safe and well, our home fire safety visits, and run through the checklist, get everything done. Bang, 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 bang. Excellent. Out we go. Very easy to turn up someone's home, put out the fire, get away as quickly as we can. But that is a problem of deficit. We solved the problem that we were set out to do, and now we're off. Would it not be more, much better to listen to that person, to really understand their needs, to want to try and come alongside them as best we can in, in all the ways we can? It's that relationship as communities, as, 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 a, as families, as a, as a wider country should be, where the real issue is, is. And I try to remember this in my work as a firefighter. I manage some firefighters, and I try to remember they have problems at home. They have pressures beyond those I see. I tried to get and use the names of casualties I care for. I tried to be truly present with the, with the lonely, elderly people I visit for my safe and well visits, listening to all the things they've got to say, not just what I need on my sheet to complete my visit, but all the things they want to tell me, even if that takes more of my time than maybe I need it to. Small acts that stand against dislocation. However, I will always be constrained by the setup I find myself in. We as the fire service, and again, I think you can read police and ambulance and others for this, we are simply not built with an understanding of problems of dislocation, but we see those problems as that of deficit. However, when I look at Jesus, I clearly see in his life that he sets up for a model of engaging with us through this idea of dislocation. Now, caveat this, but we clearly need work to be done for us sometimes. We need the fire service, the police. We do need that at times. And indeed, Jesus died for us on the cross. He did that for us. However, before he did that, he was with us for 33 years. 30 of those years, Jesus spent just being with us. No ministry, no miracles. He just spent time with us. He built relationships. He grew to know us. And he was with us. And it is we, the church, who are there to carry this on. It is our role as a church to be with. The problems around us are those of dislocation. And we as the church, I believe, are the only organization in the world that are set up with such an idea of how we can challenge this. We're the only organization that, with our foundation, is set up to see the world as one of relational problems where we, we are to engage with. It's our challenge to understand how we can be with people. It's the church who offer the true hope in the world. But being with is not easy. It takes time and effort to live with people. Of course, we want them to know Jesus, their Lord and Savior. But when they become a project and no longer a person, we sell them short. and We do not love them fully as Christ has commanded us to. So consider then, how do you view the challenges you face? Are the people involved problems to be overcome or people to be with? And how as the church can we learn from Christ's example and act accordingly? Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. Wonderful. Especially wasn't feeling very well yesterday, so thank you for coming off your sick bed. Man flu's a killer, uh, be warned. I'm a bit disappointed there weren't more graphic pictures, though. I was thinking, you know, fire service, we're going to kind of outdo the health service with some really kind of grim stuff. So thank you for holding back there, Frank. What, what a ride we're having so far. We've had all things. We've had corns and commodes. We've had the tiniest of babies. We've had the great concept of how do we really help people by being with people. And the last four we get ourselves refueled, um, where's Amanda? Amanda Maxwell here. So, okay, are you ready? 
You've got fuel for everyone. Fantastic. Even more reason to give you a big welcome. Let's welcome Anna to the stage, shall we? This is so good, hearing people's stories. Thank you, Amanda. Suddenly, you're our favourite one straight away. It's amazing. Bribery. Yeah, just for you, Tim and Hazel. Yeah, enjoy. So, um, uh, not really, but... Uh, okay. So, if it's okay with you all, I've got a clip that I'd like you to look at first. So, just watch it and think about it and hold it in mind, and then um, hopefully it'll make some sense as I talk. Okay, I'm going to move out of the way. Go for it, Billy. Information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Example? Example? Okay, um... Ogres are like onions. They stink? Yes. No. Oh, they make you cry? No! Oh, you leave them out in the sun, they get all brown, start sprouting little white hairs. No! Layers! Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers? You get it. We both have layers. <sighs> oh, you both have layers. Oh. You know, not everybody likes onions. Cake! Everybody loves cakes. Thank you. <laughs> so, as I talk, hopefully that will make sense. And like everyone else, I, I do things at work, but I've never done anything like this. So you have to bear with me, okay? So, if you don't know, my name's Amanda. Um, I've been in this church for a little while. I think maybe heading towards 10 years. Um, but also, in my day job, um, I'm a social worker. I'm a children's social worker. And currently, I, um, I'm a civil servant. I work for Ofsted. I'm, I'm a social care inspector. Um, I inspect services which provide um, care for children. I judge them on um, how well they care for those children. I give hard-to-hear messages, but I have one aim, and that is to get the best care for those children. I came into social care 25 years ago, and during that time, I've had many roles. I've worked in local authority, managing social work teams, um, that was my most recent role. Before that, um, I was a social worker. Um, I've worked in court work, in child protection. Um, every aspect of social care that you can think of, I've done. That wasn't my original plan. Um, I didn't start out to do that. I didn't choose it. Um, it chose me. I left school wanting to be an engineer. Um, actual fact, I did a BTEC in engineering at college. And... Um, but very quickly, um, the path I was following took a sharp turn, and I ended up here in my personal journey. So it's been a colourful one, a challenging one, and heartbreaking at times. I've struggled with my own identity, who I was, where did I belong, what can I contribute? I've lacked self-esteem, confidence, belief in myself. I would fall into, fall into the role sometimes of being the victim. I've carried lots of labels as I've grown up. Um, I, um, I'm a child from a broken home, which has happened twice. My mother's on her third marriage, but that's a whole different story. We won't go there. Um, often you could say I had the label of works hard, 
but doesn't achieve, a bit chubby or a bit fat, depending on what day of the week it was and how I was feeling. But I found who I am. I'm on my journey, the one that God gave just to me. Each, li- each layer, and this is <laughs> each layer of that onion that I peel teaches me and guides me through a new part of my journey. I found my calling, I love my work, every single bit of it. And the day I don't, that's because my journey is taking me in a different, new direction, and it's time for a change. I'm motivated by the children and young people I'm privileged to meet. They are some of the most vulnerable children in society, and I want each and every one of them to be treated with love, care, I promise I wouldn't do this. <laughs> Dignity, respect, <laughs> um, and for them to be able to thrive and to change that mould that they thought was for them. To grow and experience what God created them to be. So we did that one, I missed it, sorry. And then there's this one. So. I'm going to tell you a little story um, about a young person that I met recently. So, the young person I met, he told me his story, his experiences about his journey. He, through circumstance, being neglected as a child by the adults that were meant to look after him, through them making poor decisions, meant that he ended up making poor decisions and getting involved in crime, selling drugs to earn a buck. He then learnt he needed to carry a knife to protect himself. Anyway, a long story cut short, he was involved in a stabbing and was given a custodial sentence, at which point he was offered an an olive branch through a programme called Exodus. He, since then, has made a conscious decision and choice And he's turned his life around. He's got a job. He's gone back to education. He's decided to move away from those groups and connections that may hook him back into crime, violence or drugs. He reminded me that our God works in amazing ways with all people from all walks of life. So, just checking. I've learnt to be expectant and expect the unexpected. Each day to be faithful and trust in what God has in store. Have you? Sorry, it's because I've taken my glasses off. I can't see the numbers. (laughs) So, treat everyone you come into contact with, with love, kindness, compassion, respect and dignity. My life has taken me on a journey of experiences, some hard and some easy, but all of which have shaped the person I am today. I believe my journey and story is who I am and this helps me as I have empathy and some insight, but not all, into those difficulties that those children are facing. God guides me through. He is the one constant in my life. He is my everything. 
And as I've grown as his child, my relationship and knowledge has grown and developed. He is my heavenly father and my best friend. He is everything I didn't have as a child. And all I wish is that I'd known him sooner and I'd been able to have that relationship with him for longer. As a child, I went to church, but I never expected the relationship that I have with him now. I describe my faith like an onion. That's where Shrek comes in. I keep peeling another layer, getting deeper. Ogres are like onions. Some layers hurt, and I cry. And others, I laugh with joy. A friend, who's not actually here today, but she should be, told me this fact. (laughs) That onions are the most light vegetable. I'm not sure that social workers are liked, and I'm definitely not sure that Ofsted inspectors are liked (laughs) or loved. Anyway... My journey has led and guided me in my work. I have experienced, seen, and heard many horrible things over the years. But God is my strength, my counsellor, and the one who fills me each day to manage the next. I focus on today, and God sorts out tomorrow. He provides me with the food I need to get me through each day. He is my saviour, and his love wraps itself around me. It's like a cloak but it also sits deep within me in the dark, deep, dark places. And he's always there. I just need to call and he answers. He hears my prayers and he answers. He strengthens me. He gives me peace and calm in those moments of despair and challenge. I'm not able to openly share and talk about Jesus in my work, but I can pray for those I come into contact with. I can pray that they will learn and experience God in their lives, that they will be comforted, know forgiveness, love, compassion, and have the joy of freedom. Always be expectant. You never know when God will show up. I behave and treat others with the care and kindness. I aim to be positive, happy, and bring a smile to all. Like Matthew said in verse 13, I plant seeds through my daily contacts and conversations, showing kindness and compassion to those in distress, pain, and experiencing difficulty. I treat and show others love, respect, and kindness and dignity allowing others to wonder what it is that I have that enables me to see hope in the darkest of places. Hope in the difficult times. He wants me to bear great fruit. I do this by leaving a seed, or laying a seed, (laughs) and praying that they don't all fall on stony ground, but some will fall on fertile soil. Christian life is about living for God every day, touching the lives of those around us. Everyone is special to God. He cares about everyone. It's important to get rooted. His love endures forever. We may be carrying shame and fear, but share that with God. 
and you can feel, see and know the freedom it can bring. He died so that we can be forgiven of our sin. No one is perfect. We all sin. We are all on a journey. Take the offer and enjoy the free given ride. It's amazing what God has to show and teach you along the way. So, expect the unexpected. I'm expectant and I expect the unexpected every single day. Do you? Be faithful and trust in God. He's faithful and he guides you through. Thank you. Oh, man. Great work, Amanda. Great stuff. Thank you so much for what you've shared this afternoon. Isn't this just gold? Isn't it gold? And aren't we, what an amazing community we're a part of. All four people who've shared so far this afternoon are, are, are such blessings to us, and it's such a joy that they're part of our community. And if you don't know them, if they don't know your name yet, then, I, then this is the weekend to go and introduce yourself uh, and get these people in your lives. They're great, aren't they? I was a little bit apprehensive um, before this afternoon, thinking, how will we get people back from our mid-afternoon coffee break? We've only got 10 minutes uh, and it'll be a bit of a, a queue and will we struggle to get people back in? But it's not going to be an issue, is it? Because this is so good. I just know that you're going to be back in your seats much quicker than 10 minutes because you don't want to miss out on anything. That's true, isn't it? We are only halfway. We've got four more fantastic individuals sharing some more fantastic stuff with us. So there's the opportunity. Go to the toilet, grab a coffee, grab a cup of tea, bring it back to your seats and we'll be carrying on in exactly 10 minutes. Been really encouraging having heard Paul Benger this morning talking about renewal of all things, about the part that we play by bringing God into every situation. And we are hearing about people who are sharing their stories of bringing God into their everyday situation. It's not just a theory. It's a reality that many of you are living out. And I feel so chuffed. We've got so many incredible people in our church making such a significant difference in their workplaces. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, no pressure to the next four, but the last four have been very good, haven't they? I mean, you can imagine thinking, oh, no, I've got to follow all that. Wonderful. Well, I'm trying to make sure number five is available. Or has Alan left the building? He has actually lipped the loo. Ah, have you actually been to the loo, Alan? Don't try and hold it in. Uh, We're up now. Is that going to work for you? We could do some tunes. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Alan Newman. All right. Excellent. So I thought we would do a few hits. We normally do a few hits before we kick off, don't we? So I thought I had a few minutes. No hits, straight in. Uh, right, okay, here we go. Uh, was um, with Hazel. I haven't started. Oh, is there a clock? Is there? Oh, no, it started it already. I was with Hazel there. We were talking about uh, being married, but I was doing a little joke because I do this joke with Sonia when we talk. You ever ask your other half, seeing how many only children are here, ask your other half, have you ever thought about having an affair? And I always do the joke with Sonia that I couldn't bear the thought of the look of disappointment on someone else's face. It, it's just too much. Uh, anyway, right. Uh, okay, so my name's Alan. I work for the BBC. It comes with, it's a big brand, the BBC. It's a big, uh, well-known brand in the UK. It scores quite highly. 
as a well-known brand. The downside, I don't tell people I work for the BBC usually. Um, I didn't tell them I was a mechanic when I used to meet people because they want you to fix their car. When you tell people you work for the BBC, you can see often a look of excitement. Uh, they go, oh, the BBC. And I think, oh, no, here it comes. Save me. They go, oh, what do you do? Do you do the one show? Do you extend or something like that? And they go, actually, I'm going to hit them hard. I go, no, I'm in radio. So, boom, they drop down straight away. Then they go, oh, I like Chris Evans. Don't like Jeremy Vine so much. Who do you think, you know, this sort of thing. And I go, oh, I don't even work at network radio. I work for regional radio. And then the excitement's totally gone. Uh, and then uh, I work at the BBC in Southampton. They do uh, South Today there. What else do we do? Online, um, Inside Out, Radio Solent, all that kind of thing. It's good. Right, a uh, little bit of uh, the most popular questions I get asked when, I t when people find out I work for the BBC are, in no particular order, can I get them Strictly Come Dancing tickets? <laughs> Is... Number one, uh, what would be the second one before I put them on the screen? They can't fly in. Um, that's too rude. Oh, I know the second one. In, in top order would be, can my son or daughter have work experience? That's the next one. But what makes that one funny is that I could have had no contact with a particular friend for 20 years. They've gone, they've had, uh, got married, they've had kids, their kids are now older. And they go, hey, Alan, how's it going? You think, oh, God, I know what they want. Yeah, fine, thanks. Any chance that Deirdre could have work experience? Uh, the other one is, and this is always from the fellas, uh, is the weather girl on South Today. Is she married? Uh, which is a seedy, unpleasant question, uh, but I can understand why. There's plenty of data to suggest for TV that men will wait for the weather. And we're pretty sure it's not the weather they're waiting for. Um, it's the weather girl. Uh, so I do that. Actually, do you know, a lot of them, it would be disappointing, fellas. You're probably doing all right. And uh, the salaries the salaries are outrageous in the BBC. Agreed? They are outrageous, some of the salaries. But what the real outrage, I tell you, is the fact that I'm not on them. <laughs> then I could be outraged, and I could come off them every now and then. But uh, I wish I was on them. Right. What gets you fired really quickly at the BBC? Uh, there are two things. Number one, if you haven't got a TV license, you're, you're fired. And the other thing uh, that I've just tailored slightly, when you start the BBC, you go on a little training course, and you have to put rude words on a board... And you keep going with your rude words until you get to a very rude word. And then you're told that this rude word will get you fired unless you can justify how it has come out on air or on telly. And it has a nickname. Through, I've been with the BBC since I was 30. But it has a nickname depending on what's happening. And at the moment, the nickname for it at our office is called the Jeremy Hunt. All right. Here we go. Have a quick read, have a quick read. We've only got five minutes left. You know, there's no evidence to suggest that you'll remember anything more than three minutes of this talk anyway. Why talks are 40 minutes long? I have no idea. Okay, uh, so has the news changed much over the years? So what year was that? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? There you go. Around 300 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, so news hasn't changed that much. Uh, but it does have an impact. There are all sorts of services we've heard of. And so a little glance into our world is that we are constantly bombarded with sad things all the time. Sad things. Go to press conferences. 
And it, you, you sit there and you wait in a queue to talk to the chief constable or whoever's leading the investigation. And the parents will do their presentation and say, you know, oh, we just want our daughter back. And back at the office, everyone, like the police, are all thinking the same thing. It's probably a family member that did it. Statistically, that's quite likely. So we cover a lot of sadness all the time. It's constant sadness. Cases, all that kind of thing. It pours in. And with it comes questions. You've got to be asking questions. It's really important to be asking questions. And it's a value I have. Uh, I love questions and I love integrity. So how, what the heck, the heck am I doing at work with my faith? So a long time ago, I was a youth worker. I was uh, kind of in a church. Not kind of in a church. I wasn't in a church. And a fund of, I was thinking of two things that sprung to mind in my walk, I suppose. Is a friend of mine's friend died in a car accident. And he called me up and said, you're not going to believe it, James has died. Can we go for a burger? We went for a burger and it hit me hard. I was in my 20s, hit me hard. I couldn't work it out. I couldn't, couldn't square the circle, what was going on. I was praying about it, praying about it. God, what was, what was going on? What, what, how did this happen? We've been praying for safety. We've done all the prayers. We've prayed all the good stuff. We've been praying together. How did it happen? And I felt like God said to me, kind of, however God does that, he was driving too fast. This hit me hard because he was driving too fast. He was coming down a slip road late at night. He pulled out, hit a car, went into the central reservation and died. But what hit me was that the world is rotating. God has put things in place. The gyroscope is spinning. And sometimes I think God has the ability to somehow put his hand into that gyroscope. But on the whole, it's spinning. It doesn't matter how hard you pray. If I drop this microphone, it's hitting the floor. Yeah? The gyroscope is spinning, and somehow God interacts in that. So questions became very important for me. The second thing was that I had this encounter with God when I was in my 20s. It was a bizarre encounter, and I felt like I was in a waterfall with, with like, Jesus. Not he wasn't in it with me. That would be weird. But, like, he was, he was the waterfall. And I remember it still to this day. It was remarkable. But what I, what I got from it was that I was accepted at that point, that he loved me at that point. There was no, you've got to become. There was no, if only. There was no, come to the front. There was no, it would be better if you did this. There was no, on Wednesday we are. It was at that moment, I felt I was enough. So those two things, so questions and being enough now shapes my life at work. So at work, I don't tell people I'm a Christian, why would you do that? It's madness. But <laughs> if they... If they ask, I'll tell them about my faith, but I like to have those things. I like to be asking questions, and I like to have integrity. I'm drawn to integrity. I like it. You know, and I like the, the, the idea that integrity is a magnet rather than someone being right. You know, what really worries me is when, we, when I don't think about something, I just assume the person is right. If ever I sit and listen to a talk and I think to myself, this is just all good stuff, I think, you idiot. Your brain is shut down. You know, I've been speaking now for, oh, no, eight minutes. And at some stage, your brain should have kicked in and gone, I don't really believe that. That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah? So here's a question for you. You can't have hope without doubt. I'm going to try and pitch this to you now. Because this is really important for my faith. This keeps me on my toes. Yeah, this is really important. All right? song, isn't there a song? Worship team, was there a song with hope in? Your hope is in me alone. Yeah, all right. I thought there was. Yeah. 
so tattooed on my Christian brain. <laughs> my hope is in you alone. I know I would be so much happier if, if that was my doubt is in you alone. That'd be so, for me, that'd be so much better. That when someone's speaking, my brain is sparking and going, hmm, do I think that? Do I experience that? They're presenting a lot of truth here. How can it possibly be true? It's only true to them. Is it true to me? What's my experience? And doubt keeps me energized. It keeps me rubbing close to the Bible. It keeps me rubbing close to Jesus. We're constantly falling out. Who would make a world like this? It's got so many problems in it. Maybe you're not that great. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What you got for me? What you got for me? Right. If you're about to get an award, this is what I'm going to leave you with. If you're about to get an award, you're not sure. You're going to get, I don't know, an Oscar, right? You're going to get an Oscar. Yeah, I'm going to get an Oscar. I hope I get the Oscar for best director. That's your hope. Agreed? We're all directors. We're all hoping. Okay? But if someone comes up to you and says, by the way, your name's on the list, you're, you're going to get the uh, best director Oscar. I've seen it. Guaranteed. Do you still have hope? You don't have hope anymore. You know it. It was the bit of doubt. It was the grain of doubt, the friction there. I'm pretty sure it was a good film, but am I going to get it? The friction, the question, you know, the question, the spark of the brain. I always say to my kids, Karis is coming off. Right, I'm minus 20, but this is good. Karis is, Karis is, coming, Karis is coming to the conference. My daughter, Karis, lovely. She's amazing. She's coming to the conference. and She goes, I'm going to the Christian conference, Dad. My heart sunk a little bit, but I said, no, good for you. You be yourself. I said, remember, don't believe everything you hear. You've got to look at your own experience. Does what the person's saying here match with your experience? Or are you just believing it? I I appreciate it. It may not be the best parenting in the world. But she deserves it because she's the best daughter in the world. And finally, I told my son this. I said, you know that uh, it doesn't actually say... He goes to the kids club, which he really likes, the kids group. I said, you know it doesn't actually say in the Bible that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. He goes, What? What? I said, I know, and this is high risk for a parent because you're thinking, crikey, he could go out and pre-populate the entire planet. This might unleash him. Oh, God, this is amazing. I'm off. Uh, I said, it doesn't. It's an interpretation. And the most important thing is you ask yourself the question. Have the grain of doubt. Yeah, and that's what keeps me going at work. I appreciate I am slightly mental. But I'm done. Oh, wow. (laughs) I think we just take a deep breath. (laughs) Alan, that was gold. Thank you. You can't have hope without doubt. That's an absolute line to let sink into our souls, isn't it? That's really good. So thank you. That's absolutely (laughs) magic. Great. In my excitement, I can't even remember who's up next. Sim, help me out. I'm totally bamboozled. Yes, I knew it. Can we do a massive round of applause, please, for our very own Charlie Baxter. Charlie? Come on up, the floor is yours. Great. Hi, I'm Charlie, and um, sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint presentation. I did do a really, really boring one. It took me a really long time, and you'll see I'm very bad with technology. I thought, yeah, I'll find some of the photos of the things I'm going to talk about, which would have been quite interesting, except that I have dyspraxia, mildly. I forget a lot. So I put them somewhere 
in that safe space. I can't find them. So at some point in the next year, hopefully I'll find them. Anyway, so you'll see the irony, the irony of what I'm about to tell you. I haven't always been a teacher. In fact, 10 years ago, I was an air hostess, long haul, and it was quite exciting. Okay? Now, this story starts somewhere in my past, and again, I can't quite remember because my brain is quite fuzzy. But when I was about six, I started praying, and my prayers were quite one way, one directional. And this went on for a really long time until I think my early 20s, when I was in bed one night, someone walked into my room, a presence, an actual, I felt a person in my room. I said, who's that? And I heard these words, I am the Holy Spirit and you need to get to know me. Now, I'm not from a Christian family. In fact, I'd had quite a self-directed belief, faith, until until I was a lot older, actually. I hadn't really been to church much. I studied the Bible at home or by myself. I did sometimes go to church with some friends. But actually, if you go to a certain kind of church, you can completely miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is meant to be something that you are supposed to interact with. Up until that moment, this is what happened. Now, I was an air hostess at about the same time. And I heard God say, you need to move to Sheffield. Sheffield was where my friends lived, and uh, they were part of a really big church full of thousands of people. Now, at this time, I moved into the attic room of a couple who were Christian, and something happened. The world, my spiritual life, burst forth into realms of color, and I started hearing, seeing, uh, just dreaming things from God, real, real experiences. Um... And I started painting. I had done a little bit of painting. But I started, you know, doing this kind of things. And one day, I was quite new to the church. And I heard God say, do a painting for the, the, the minister of the church. Now, he didn't know who I was. He, I was new. There were thousands of people. And I tried to do all these, you know, these, these pictures. I tried to do Christ on the cross. I tried to do all these these experiences, these, you know, biblical images. And God actually said, no, paint him a wave. I was like, really? I quite like painting waves. This is the easy way out. But, you know, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll paint this wave. And it sort of got done. And, it, you know, it was, I was doing it. And, and I just left it a little bit. And then one day early in the morning, God woke me up and it was after a long flight so I was really tired and God said get out of bed and finish the wave so I got out of bed and I finished the wave and I dropped it over to his house he was out and actually that day um, that day that was the third wave image that that people had given I was the third person to give that man the picture of the wave so you can see I was leading quite an exciting life at this point. I was hearing really specifically from God. You know, when I wasn't at church or doing these things, I was off to Vegas. I was to Kenya, to Australia. I was having a really nice time of it, actually. It was brilliant. I'd hear so, so, so clearly. I was at a conference, my church conference. And this is a little controversial, but I was allowed to do little paintings and give them to people. And... Um, the church, the, one of the leaders of sort of like a sister church was up on the stage. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just looked up and I thought, oh, I didn't realize Marjorie was pregnant. 
and she was like shaking all over with the Holy Spirit falling all over the place. And I went, God, you're going to shake the baby out of her. And I looked again and she wasn't pregnant. And I thought, this is really strange. So I did a little picture of her. did a a picture of a pregnant woman, just a rough little painting. And I, I tried to find her at the end and I couldn't find her. But the lady in church who was in charge of all the sort of prophetic ministry, I found her and I said, where's Marjorie? She said, oh, she's gone home. I said, I've got this picture for her. This lady blushed. Apparently, when you're, when you're prophesying over people, you're not really supposed to prophesy things like marriage and babies. It's, it's sort of a like, you know, a no-go. I said, no, I'm really sure. Well, nothing was said, and it was that sort of moment where I'd stepped out, and it was kind of excruciating, really, because she didn't, she didn't make any eye contact with me. I thought, oh, I don't want to ask her about that. That's really cringy. Maybe she really hated the painting. But exactly roughly three months later I uh, I saw my friend and she said Charlie I can now tell you that actually she was pregnant but didn't realize it and had just been asked to take over the church and um, was worried about it because she she knew about this pregnancy so I gave her the picture and then she realized that actually she was God knew that she was pregnant when she was asked and she was told to you know take over take over from the church so you know, there were loads of really exciting experiences at that time it was really risky I was you know I was scared actually <laughs> but it was exciting it's ex- it's exhilarating they're not all like that I have to say one day I was I was on a flight and I it was brilliant I used to be able to spend time with God and and I I'd prophesy to the other crew I'd say hey you know I'm a Christian and and it was a really exciting place to be one day, there was a, a man, one of the air crew, and he said um, something about being a Christian but not going to church anymore. And I had this word for him, and it was getting really, really late. And I felt like, um, I felt like God was saying, tell him to go back to church. And it got right to the end. And when you're, when you're being picked up from the hotel at the other side, you will get on the bus and you will go to the airport together. And I kept going, God, I haven't told him. I haven't told him. And, and this day, the bus was completely silent. And I was like, oh, God, I really don't want to mention it. I really don't. I said, okay, God, if, you meant, if he talks to me about a lion, I promise I'll tell him, I'll tell you the story. I kid you not, he turned around and he said, I was in Johannesburg last week and I saw these amazing lions. <laughs> and I went, oh. And actually, I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't mention it. I just didn't say anything. Sorry, I'm, I'm rabbiting on. Anyway, so the end of my three years came as a, you know, I, I've, I'd done it for three years. And I began, to, I began to want something else. You know, I was going all over the place. It was really tiring. And actually, I heard God say, you're going to be a teacher. Now, bear in mind what I said to you about the PowerPoint presentation. You'll see the irony of that statement. And I said to God, are you sure? I need some confirmation. Well, that week, three people out of the blue, told me that I should be a teacher. I said, okay, I'm going to need some more confirmation. My mum, out of nowhere, phoned me and said, Charlie, I think you should be a teacher. I said, okay, Lord. And I went, to, uh, I went to church. I used to volunteer at a self-help group, and I bumped into a college lecturer. And um, I said, oh, God's been speaking to me about being a teacher. She said, well, that's funny, because um, we do an air hostess course at the college, and the teacher's just gone off sick, and we need a teacher. 
So <laughs> I realised in that moment I needed to be a teacher and I did eventually, you know, get that job. It took sort of six months of me doing a little bit of work with them. And I made that jump and I became a teacher and I hated it. I absolutely despised it. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I said, God, what are you doing? And there was silence. Absolute silence for the longest, longest time. And I wish I could tell you that I remember when I started hearing from God again. But it's gradually come back. Now, my talk really is about obedience today. And I want to just say this. Sometimes we think that the most holy people are the ones doing the most godly things. I think we, you know, the other speakers have been saying this, actually. You, when you're pursuing God in whatever he has asked you to do, however he has asked you to be obedient, then that is what, you know, that is the most important part of this. Now, I don't know why God wants me to be a teacher. I find it absolutely exhausting. <laughs> Somehow, by the grace of God, the children seem to like me. They seem to do quite well. But I've tried to get out so many times and God keeps saying, no, you're going to be a teacher. It's like, I want to be released from this somehow. But he keeps saying, no, 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 you promised me. You know, this is what I, this is what I have for you. And sometimes I hear him say, Charlie, it's none of your business. <laughs> this is my business. It's none of your business what I'm doing. I don't know why God wants me to be to be here. So I just encourage you, if you're feeling like you're not really hearing from God at this moment, I, I went into teaching really feeling like, sorry, I've run over, um, really feeling like, wow, if God's doing all that exciting things, those exciting things, and I, he didn't even tell me to be an air hostess. When I become a teacher and I walk in that obedience, wow, it's really going to set on fire. And actually, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that suddenly I should stop hearing all those exciting things. I should stop hearing, having all those moments of prophecy. I just, I don't know. I guess maybe God sent me to boot camp. I don't know if any of you are feeling, you know, feeling like that. Somehow it will all come into, you know, come into a moment of clarity. But honestly, I just don't know at this moment. And I'm sure there are lots of other people out there, in a, you know, in a situation where you're not really sure what God's doing either. I think that's it. I had, sorry, I had one Bible verse. It was Romans 12, 11 to 12. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient. One more thing, actually. Sorry, I did have a moment. I did have a moment earlier where I thought, you know what, maybe, just maybe, God has called me to be a teacher because somebody, somebody needs to love that Ofsted inspector. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Charlie. I am loving all the different ranges of people and the conversations we are starting here. Yes, in your workplace, be patient. I mean, what a great, great comment there to think for all of us being challenged in our workplaces. Wonderful. We're almost there. We've got a couple more to go. Don't you worry. I'm sure there's some great stories coming our way. Can you do a massive welcome to the stage? Um, I'm just checking for a welcome. Yes, he is there. Good. Angus, come and join me, Angus. 
Wonderful. I won't give anything away because I'm not sure exactly what you're going to say, but this is Angus, married to Monique, and has been probably around the church the last almost year, I suppose. Anyway, over to you, Angus. Thank you, thank you. Um, I just thought I'd first of all say I'm Angus Lavin. I've been a Christian for about 25 years. I, I, I honest to say that I'm part of the Christian club, and I'm quite happy to share all of that stuff. And when I became a Christian, I was born out of um, a lot of pain. I had an industrial injury at work, um, which meant by the time I was 19, I was being medically retired from the Ministry of Defence. So I'd had a bit of a rocky start to my career, and my education was um, next to non-existent, I think it's fair to say. I um, didn't learn to read or write until I was about 11, because I was born partially hearing. And there's various sort of things that, so my education was a bit of a nightmare. My mum and dad loved me to bits, not particularly Christian, but so I had a good family background and was born in Scotland, as you could tell by my, by my name. Um, and when, in, when I was in Scotland, there was Alexandria and Helensburgh and Dumbartonshire, I was part of the only family in my school, and it was quite a big school, that had parents that were together. So I was often sort of ignored because actually you know, there was far too many social workers looking after all of the, the chaos in other families. So in that, in that way, I've had a really lovely family upbringing. Um, but when um, uh, I became a Christian, I was, uh, I was struck by this thing about um, um, we have um, people in church who are, who are paid to, to run church, who have called to run church. And I had a similar thing, and I thought, oh, I'm now really passionate. I really see God's spirit, you know, working in people's lives. And I thought, actually, I, I think I should be a, like, a, go and go to Bible college or something. Like that. And I'll look back and think, why did everything that? Uh, and, then I, and then I went and I had a, a long weekend uh, where you go and you just, you just study yourself to pieces and sit and listen to God for like four days, um, solid, nobody else. And it was really clear as crystal, no, that's not right for you. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go for that. And then really what, what, what ended up was I, I, um, I was an engineer, helicopter engineer, and then I had my industrial injury, and then I, was, I became a Christian after a bit of a life and death moment, after being pumped full of the wrong drugs and turning blue, which apparently is quite an interesting color to turn blue. I don't know if that's correct. In the, that was me. Imagine this size all blue. It's a bit like a big smurf, isn't it? So um, I, I turned, and then I remember waking up, and one of the people that I... I I saw first was actually a friend of mine from school who'd become a Christian. He'd come and seen me. And we'd had been talking a little bit about, um, about Christianity. And I'd been, you believe in all that sort of stuff? Are you crazy? Now I'm part of the crazy gang. So um, I just wanted to go through this. This is up in the air, the restructuring in the Christian way. Now, can you, so I'm, I'm Scottish. I'm about six foot four, um, like 19 stone. Uh, I can lift quite heavy things. What do you think I do for a living? Does anybody have any idea? I asked a group of kids this, and, and somebody said, you're an artist, uh, a poet. Um, and I said, not a rugby player or a policeman. I wanted to become a policeman. And, and, and they said, um, no, it's not, not quite it. So I thought, well, this is what I do. Has anyone seen Up in the Air movie? So, so this is about me. You know, I, I am George Clooney. You, you may not He's modeled himself after a day in the life of Angus Lavin. So, so effectively what I do, and this is, um, God gave me a prophecy once when I was really struggling and not able to walk very well. He said, go and run around this building, run around this block, which I was never able to do. And when I came back, he said, I'm going to find you a job. 
I'm going to find get you a new house because I'm having problems with my house at the time, and I'm going to find your wife. Now, as a Christian, not interested in sex before marriage, I know the biblical discussion we have earlier with our friendly BBC chap, um, but you know, it's quite I quite look at it. It's very a very sort of small, narrow community of ladies that I was particularly interested in, and most of them are married, so I was having those sort of troubles. Um, and then um, one day, so I, I then I then got I went for a job at Hazard Hospital, so NHS orientated, and I was going there to work in their HR for, for their um, uh, Navy and Armed Forces. And they said, oh, you've come to the wrong place. We want you in civilian personnel, which is HR for the nurses and stuff. And then that's where I've been ever since. And one of the things when you talk about HR is where you do get a lot of really sort of horrible situations. We sort of see the results of all the pressures that people are under, you know, particularly in the NHS, but you have that everywhere you go. And how do you bring... Christianity into your life and I've worked with more recently people like this so everything everywhere um, Jaguar Land Rover um, Ministry of Defense which was where I started and I still quite love love Ministry of Defense um, Ordnance Survey BP T Systems T Mobile and worked with everything everywhere um, nationwide where I'm helping at the moment uh, Marks and Spencer's a reducing reoffending partnership which is a great one about um, probation and help, help trying to get people back into the community. And that was where, um, throughout all of these, you think, well, not many of them are helping the society, are they? They're not like very Christian places, you know. What's EE got to do with Christianity? Well, it's got absolutely nothing to do. It's all about phones and stuff. What's Jagolando? It's about buying really expensive cars. Uh, what's T-Systems? I didn't even know after I left. Um, <laughs> Nationwide was um, a place where I'm at the moment. You think, well, that's quite nice because it's quite like doing things in the community. Uh, reducing reoffending partnerships is where you got that lovely mix between two charities and also one a private company about trying to improve people's lives. So actually every job, and I had a big session where there's 3,000 people in this one session, and a probation officer saying, you people are terrible, you do this, that, and the other, you know, how, how can you come and tell us what to do? And we should have X, Y, and Z. And I said, how many people do you see on a weekly basis? How many probation people do you actually impact on a weekly basis? And they said, two. And I said, well, that is terrible. I'm going to make your life much better at work by making sure you see at least five or six, and let's try and increase that and get rid of every other rubbish so that you can make a big difference in somebody's life. So that's what I try and do. But also, there's a horrible side of it, I'm trying to use some technology here, is when you're going through a restructure and you're making people redundant, how can you be a Christian in that scenario? I find it very easy. Other people don't. But, but actually, when you go about it and you do it correctly, you know, there's a legal bit that you've been you know, honouring honoring the legal system in the country. But actually, I have made probably about 2,500 people redundant in the last sort of 15 years, approximately. Most didn't want to be made redundant. But I am possibly the only one I know in, the HR, in my HR colleagues that have, have been given presents by people who have been made redundant. You know, I've had so many presents saying thank you. You know, you've really, you really made this situation much better for me. And the way I go about it, and this is a how, a how, why, and when, I really try and engage people on what is actually happening to try and find out from them, you know, how do they make it different? And then you have this dialogue, and when you're talking in this area, you can't mention God and anything, you can't mention this, that, and the other, you can't say that you're born again, happy, clappy Christian that loves guitars and drums and stuff at church and, and starts waving hands in the air. I can say that. I, I don't have an issue with it, and neither does anybody else. I think we often get married up in political correctness and it goes a bit crazy. Actually, you can say a lot of things. So long as you're not 
the crazy, crazy Christian that bangs people over the head with a Bible and brings it to life in a situation, then that's where God's power is. How can you make a difference in that person at that moment when effectively I'm saying, I'm sorry, but you've only got three months worth of pay left and you've, I, I know you've got three kids and you've got a house and you've got various other challenges. How can you make that better? And I try and do that by making them think of the future, getting them on the path. You know, you've, it's, it's like, you know, when you've, when you've sinned and we all sin, you know, non-Christians and Christians are alike, we're all sinners. So when you've, suddenly you've sinned, sin, son, sin, I'm not sure what the definition of that is. And you think, actually, I can put that behind me now. It's like that in, the, in bad, I can put it behind me and I can focus on the future. And that's when I, I really say to people, what do you want out of life? Where do you want to get to? How can I help that happen with you? We've got some restraints here. We've got to do something. But how can I make it better for you? Have you thought about what you need? How can we get it there? And that's when you start to have very powerful questions, very powerful discussions and questions. And as a Christian as well, um, you're, you're in the monks' society, aren't you? Uh, at work, you know, there's, there's probably about 0. Point whatever percent of Christian followers who are leaders or work for the church. The rest of us, the power of the church is out there in the community. So let's remember that. I have come across witches and all sorts of things out there, and they've got nothing on me. I can tell you that. that. <laughs> you know, bring it on. You know, I'm quite happy to be in the battle. And I actually, when I worked for the Defence Vetting Agency, um, there was two witches who worked for the top vetting um, end, as it were, classification, the developed vetting. And they would say, actually, oh, he's, Angus, he's, you know, he's terrible, he's a Christian, or we're going to pray against him, we're going to do this, that, and the other, and they'd created a little altar in their room against me. Uh, I, I had no idea about that. I, all I knew was I felt rather down one day, and I thought to God, you know, what is going on? Am I in a battle here? If I'm in a battle, I've already won it. And then, do you know what happened to those people? <laughs> it sounds really awful. It's a bit like a plague. There's, there's an infestation of worms in that office. And those, those two people were ill for three weeks afterwards. And that filled my heart with glee. I was, I was, <laughs> sorry, sir, I had to forgive, ask for forgiveness on that one. But that was... <laughs> um, so so as, as we go through this process, you know, there's, there's all these battles that we go to. But I say to you... Who is your employer? I've got four seconds. Oh, I'm over. Who's your employer? My employer is God. Um, so my, my love is with God. My employer is God. People who pay me in society are people who pay me in society. First and foremost, I am a Christian. So where do you plot yourself in that little chart there? Um, are you trying to survive at work as a Christian? Are you living by Christian's um, power? Or wh where are you in that box? And I believe, and I know the legislation fairly off my heart, that we can be in the bottom um, right-hand box. We can transform our workplace, and that's from a Christian who is knowing of legislation. So there's really no reason why you can't um, be a Christian at work. There's actually more reason why you can be. So let's unlock that power. And really, I am the best image. I need to be the image of Christ wherever I am. You know, in one of some of these fantastic um, careers that you hear people, mine's much more dull compared to a fireman and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I can still be an amazing image of Christ with everybody that I meet, no matter where they are. And I think it's a really important thing to, to, to remember. The calling of Christ doesn't matter where you are. It's, it's, it's still the same calling. What challenges us as a Christian in the workplace? Um, I don't think um, very much, to be fair. 
And I think, actually, if, you, if you're facing challenges, just pray about it. You've already won. You know, you can be a Christian at work, and that's what God's called you to do. Thank you very much. Great stuff. You heard it here first. There's a challenge for us all, isn't it? Thank you, Angus. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, last, but by no means least, can you just give a rapturous applause for Joe Topley? Joe, here you go. Thank you. I've just realised I've left my shoes behind. Apologies. Um, I'm at two minutes minus already. Okay. Phew. That's impressive. Okay, so I get to go last. What a challenge. What a challenge. But here we go. I've got a whole ream of notes that I've written about 50 times over. So who knows where it's going to go for the next 10 minutes. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Joe Topley. Um, been part of here for about three years now. Mum of three, wife of one, um, <laughs> mother of dog times one as well. Um, and I don't have one particular role that I want to talk about this afternoon because I have a whole load of different hats um, that I wear, being mum, being wife, uh, running the food bank. Um, I have also another four and a half, three and a half day job working at Carers Together as a project manager. I'm a school governor, I lead a big team, um, and there's all sorts of different things that go on. So for me, it's about how I stay focused when there's this great big to-do list, because how do I juggle all that stuff? And actually, the busyness and the craziness is what really drives me, and it is my strength, but it's also my biggest weakness, because I will let it sometimes do more than I perhaps should. So who loves a to-do list? Yeah? Oh, there's a lot of to-do list lovers. <laughs> I kind of pretend I love a to-do list. I write it down. And for those of you that know me, I'm a terrible complete finisher. It never really happens. So I write it all down. There's something in the writing down of the to-do list that makes me feel like I've done it. Perfect. It's all on a piece of paper, and I can file it away, and that's it. Done and finished with. Because I don't like my to-do list to control me. So therefore, I'll do it. I'll do what I'm meant to do, put it on a piece of paper, but then I'll turn it away a little bit. And I may not actually stick to it, and I can go off track very easily. So I better watch out with the clock. Um, <laughs> but it is that business that I love, and it's those things that challenge me, and it's those things that fuel me and drive me and help me stay more focused on what I believe God's called me to do. So a little bit, because there is, has to be balance in all of that, but we've only got 10 minutes, so I'm going to push on the how I love and why I love the business and the challenges of life and how we manage all those to-do lists. Um, just a little bit about my background and what I did. Mark and I um, moved out to Tanzania in 2006. We went for a couple of years and we stayed there for 10. Um, and it was amazing. And there were so many different challenges that we had on a daily basis. We ran a volunteer program for uh, volunteer dentists and dental nurses, which have about 22 volunteers out at a time. And what we would do is we would train rural health workers in oral health and basic um, oral health extraction of... Um, that's a complete rubbish, oral health extraction, dental extraction, um, safely and appropriately for people working out in the rural areas. So we had about 150 volunteers coming out across the year, and that meant lots and lots of challenges. So that kind of drove me. I loved it. It meant that we had to solve all the problems. They used to jump on little aeroplanes like this, and we never quite know, you know whether they get where they're meant to be going appropriately. We'd have loads of cars breaking down, and you'd get your volunteers being late for what was meant to be happening. But it kind of was what fueled me. 
And it made it really exciting because it gave me a challenge and it gave me something to do. And people often say, well, wasn't just living in Tanzania enough of a challenge? It's like, yeah, it was, but you get used to it. You settle into what you do very quickly. So for me, to have an added challenge kind of drives me. And it means as well that I can stick my Bob the Builder hat on and I can do my fix-it role, which I also love to do. And it means that I can help solve people's problems and I can serve people and I can do the things that I love. But what I love even more um, is when I saw my team serving and fixing the problems. So when my team put their hard hats on, that made it even better. So I had the privilege of um, being in charge of the Tanzania team, growing them, developing them, seeing them grow. And actually, when we ran our programs in Tanzania, it was really complex. There were lots of different stages that they had to do. The to-do list was massive, but within a different culture, within the East African culture particularly, planning and preparing really wasn't something that people did. So we used to say, right, we're ready for the volunteers, they're coming tomorrow. And they'd go, yeah, we're ready. And then spend all afternoon and all night and all morning charging around doing all the things that hadn't been done because they weren't ready. And so one day, my dear team member, Innocent, phoned me and he said to me, Mama, uta javini mimi. And I was like, quick, quick, remember my Swahili. And he said, you'll be really proud of me. The to-do list is on the wall. And I wasn't really bothered that the to-do list was on the wall. I was really proud of him because actually what he'd done is he'd taken the things that we'd taught him and was starting to do it for himself. They didn't need me to do the job anymore. And I think Christy was saying last night or this morning or someone said that that's what it's all about. It's about handing it on to other people and seeing other people do stuff instead of you. And that really ticks my boxes and helps me grow and helps me thrive. And it was the ethos as well of the whole organization was to train others. So these guys here in the white shirts down the bottom, they're the clinical officers that we trained. So we didn't need to be there anymore. You know, it's about passing on skills and teaching others to grow. Where am I? There's nowhere on this page. Okay. <laughs> but we'll get there. Um, so we went out to Tanzania um, as two of us. And we came back as five of us. So life was, <laughs> life was a little different when we came back. And we moved back here to Romsey. And part of that transition of moving from um, an East African community, which was a really, really tight-knit community, um, back here, I had to learn new things. I had to learn new to-do lists. They weren't the same. I couldn't translate. I couldn't bring what I'd been doing for 10 years back here and work it out in Romsey. It just wasn't going to happen. When we were in Tanzania, if, for example, you know, the car broke down when I was out in the middle of the nowhere and there's no phone signal and the kids were at school, I knew eventually someone would take my kids home and by the end of the day I'd find them. But here it's so different. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have lived in other cultures, but, you know, I have to kind of book up three weeks in advance for my kids to have a play date and I find that really challenging because we had a really tight-knit community and I do have that here now, but I've had to learn to grow in that in a different way than I was before, and I've had to learn to accept new challenges and new task lists. So when we came back to the UK, some people said it was a bit of a challenge settling in. We took the first six weeks off um, and were able to have the whole summer not working. We'd brought three kids, three adopted kids, all with different challenges, settling back into new lives here in the UK, um, working in a different way. Mark and I running a charity from here rather than Tanzania, technology, all of those things. And then I kind of thought, somehow I need a bit more of a challenge. Maybe settling three kids into a new life, new schools, making new friends isn't quite enough. So I was having a conversation with Sim one day, 
And by the end of that conversation, it seemed to be that maybe I could take on setting up food bank. <laughs> because, you know, why not put a bit more stuff in my day and in my time? So I was working three days a week and um, chatting with Sim, then was able to say, let's get the food bank up and running. And obviously, Sim had the initial vision for that. But it's been a real privilege to be part of it and to have the opportunity to serve and to serve people and to serve the local community in the way that I love, in the way that makes me really tick and connects me back with Jesus again. Because I think the same things happen there in that I now have a team of volunteers. Paul sitting at the back, he stayed on just to hear this, didn't you, Paul? Um, you know, I have a team of volunteers who I don't need to manage. I don't, well, I do need to manage, but I don't need to be there day to day because the team are doing it themselves. So I've been able to pass it on and say, come on, guys, you get on with it. And what that does is that enables me to stick to my to-do list, the things that I can do and not the things that I think I need to do for other people. And I think there's a real journey and a real learning in that for me to focus on what it is that God wants me to do and can I pass stuff on to other people because it's really important that we do that. And there's Libby as well, I think, in that photo. And I, as I was doing this, it's been really, really reflective, actually, writing and just stopping and thinking that life is busy, but actually what it's about, it's about growing other people, passing on to other people, developing others so that they can take on from what you're doing and making yourself redundant in what you do. And actually, all through my kind of professional life I've been in a fortunate position to do that I was a, a nurse I was a ward sister and I spent my time teaching and developing people allowing them to move on and take over the roles that I was doing and seeing them grow and it's really made me connect and think about how actually that's what I believe God's called me to do is to see others grow but how much that fuels my faith so that's not just about me loving that because I do love it but it's about the fact that actually it really fills me back up again as well there's a picture of all of us. I'm not quite sure why that's there, but I think it was just to prompt the fact that as well as work and food bank and all those kind of things, within my everyday with three kids, as any of you will know in the room with children, chaos reigns, really. And we talked about, someone mentioned chaos earlier, and that's what happens. There is a lot of chaos. I have amazing family, wouldn't be without them, but there is chaos. And to manage that chaos, I have to have those to-do lists, and I have to have schedules, and I have to have ways of doing things. This is my fridge. I don't know if anyone else has a fridge like that, but it's full of schedules, it's full of things. And it means that the five of us can be where we need to be, when we need to be, with what we need to be, with the right food tech, with the right pee bag, with the right shoes, with the right things. And it's really important to get that balance and to do it. But the way that I can fuel myself up as well is to come away from the business of home, which I love. And this isn't dismissing my role as a mom to my three gorgeous children. But it is saying that sometimes I need to come away from that and I need to look at where I'm serving and what I'm doing and who else I'm encouraging other than my family and which ways I can do that. And I just want to really encourage all of you, who are we serving? Who are you encouraging? You know, who are you getting alongside? Who are you giving time to? And I've also gone over time, but I'll just keep going because I'm last. Um, <laughs> I've not got long, don't worry. And I think as well, you know, over, over my journey, I've had amazing opportunities to do some fantastic serving. You know, I gave, we gave up 10 years and spent it in Tanzania. And, and it was an amazing opportunity. But it was, a, it was a sacrifice on one level. But it was a real, you know, we felt we were serving. We we're doing what God called us to do. 
And if any of you have the opportunity to get out of Romsey and go do something, all I can do is really encourage you to go and do it and encourage your children to do it because it's an amazing, amazing journey. But actually, it's not necessarily about those big mission things. For me now, where I am, with three kids from the age of six to 12, I'm a very old mother. Um, it's about the school playground. It's about the people that I meet every day. And actually, it's not about the big stuff anymore. It's about the day-to-day. -day. And who am I serving? So, you know, I ask God on a daily basis as I'm wandering around school, you know, who is it today? Who do you want me to talk to? Who's on their own? And I don't do it consciously, but I kind of know it's happening. So there's one lady at the moment, one mum. Considering we're, we're nearly at half term, aren't we? So there's been quite a few weeks of school. Every morning, her child is attached to her leg, and she's having to push her into class. And it's painful, really, really painful. So I've just talk, talked to her the last few weeks and said, why don't you go and talk to school? Why don't you go and talk to the teacher? But she felt it was her job to put her child into the class. And she was leaving, starting work, full of guilt, full of pain. And so she's been able to now go and talk to the school and say to them, can you help me? Could you pull her off me in the morning? I don't mind. But she didn't know she could do that. And it's nothing. I did nothing other than stop and have a conversation. When the volunteers come in on a Wednesday, I need to stop and I need to have a conversation and I need to listen and I need to encourage and I need to serve them at the food bank. Or when the clients come in, I might not want to listen to everyone's woes, but actually that's what I need to do. I need to stop and I need to listen. I need to serve and I need to encourage. And it needs to be God's to-do list and not mine that I'm working to. And that's a whole load of other pages here that I'm just going to turn over. Um, <laughs> I think for me, this is my huge challenge. Can I be Mary rather than Martha? You know, am I running around like a busy fool with a to-do list that I'm just charging after? Or actually, am I listening? Am I stopping? Am I spending time with God? And I'm terrible at that. I have to put my hands up and say, you know, I'm pretty rubbish at one-to-one -one time. And I really felt like God said last night, um, and I don't think this is just for me, I think it's for lots of us. He, he sort of said to me, you are amazing already. But if you spend time with me, just imagine. And I was like, oh, crap, yeah, just imagine. I could be awesome, you know. I reckon I'm okay already, but I could be amazing um, if I just spent a bit more time with God. So finishing, sorry, gone over. It's just about whose to-do list, isn't it? Is it our to-do list? Are we making time for God in the midst of it all? And who are we serving and who are we sharing life with? Thank you so much, Joe. Wonderful. I really feel like this afternoon has been one of my highlights. I mean, there's so many good things we've heard and experienced. Thank you so much to these people who participated. I know it's taken a lot of work for many of you to go, this is something I'm not comfortable doing. But thank you as part of the church you're listening. Going, we've heard so much more than we've probably seen on a Sunday of what you do, what you're participating in, and the way you engage with your job, with your community. Thank you. And I love the fact that our church isn't just this place we come to, and as Alan put, we sing hits, hit tunes. We actually go and we make a difference in all, all in our society around the place. I love that. And I know for the, the eight people that, that, that spoke, there's another whole other bunch of people who have another chance to tell their story who are also making a difference. So keep doing it keep changing the place you're serving i love some of the comments that were made there i've got time to recite them all but i will mention um in your welcome bag you would have got a, a leaflet they're called speak up um this is all about some of the stuff angus was saying um the law and what you can actually say as a christian what you can and cannot do in the workplace what is appropriate and what is inappropriate and it's useful to make sure that we we are respectful i love that that phrase that the bible talks about you know always be ready to share your faith with gentleness and respect and i think it's appropriate to share your faith 
when it's the right time, in the right context, when someone's asking you the question, they've been drawn to you because of the way you operate and they've asked those questions. And then to give that with gentleness and respect. Let's be people who make a difference and do that in an appropriate manner. But can we a very finish here? It's massive, massive thank you to all those who participated this afternoon. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.